Morning, everyone. Uh, so the Bible reading today, uh, the first one from the Old Testament, Malachi 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 2. And if you've got one of the uh, church Bibles, uh, that's from page 823. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not, the, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send you my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. And the uh, New Testament reading is from Luke, chapter 7, uh, verse 135. And that one is on page 886 of the Church Bibles. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. 
They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptised by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see you here. If we've not met before, I'd love to uh, meet you later on. Um, please come and introduce yourself if I don't uh, track you down first or we can see one another around the, the back of the plant truck, um, I guess. Uh, Luke chapter 7 is the, the passage to keep open in front of you, I'd suggest. And by way of introduction, before we pray and dive right into the, uh, the, the body of the passage this morning, could we just focus for a few moments on that last little what do you call it, like a little parable or poem or uh, picture here at the, at the very end of the passage. Um, so the context is this, you'll remember Dan's just read it to us. Um, John the Baptist, so this towering prophet of a figure, has sent his, some of his disciples to ask Jesus a question because John wants to know um, whether Jesus is the real deal or not. Uh, and Jesus answers in admittedly something of a roundabout way, but he answers yes. The Lord among you, which is this staggeringly grand admission, right? It's this enormous um, uh, claim that he he makes there. Um, In case we missed it, the Malachi reading has primed us to expect the arrival of the Lord himself to finally establish justice even amongst an unfaithful people, to hold evil to account, to reinstate harmony between God and humankind, all of this wonderful stuff. I'm here, says Jesus. John says, "Are are you the one who is to come? And Jesus says, yep, that's me. Look at the signs around you. 
The kingdom of God, just like uh, John the Baptist, just like all the faithful people have always longed for of Israel. But here comes the parable, or poem, picture, whatever you want to call it, of grumpy little, uh, ungrateful little, reluctant little kids. Uh, Isn't that it there from verse 31? To what then, Jesus speaking, to what then shall um, I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. In other words, nothing that John or I have ever done is good enough, is it? Right? You want your sandwiches cut in triangles. Okay, I'll cut them in triangles. Turns out you wanted them in squares. Right? Okay, bin those. We'll make some more sandwiches. Cut them in squares. It turns out you wanted them in triangles after all, right? That's kind of the, the tenor of the, the, uh, the thing. You people refuse to be satisfied. You want me to jump through hoops of your own design that you don't even specify for me. Uh, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. Uh, the son of man, that's one of Jesus' ways of referring to himself, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. In other words, you wait and see. Wait and see how this goes. So, friends, this morning, we look at people who, throughout this passage, they are making up their minds about Jesus. And even, it seems, John the Baptist has grounds for doubt. He desires some some reassurance here as as the the people in Luke's story are trying to figure out Jesus for themselves and make up their minds. And our passage today speaks to that searching question, how do I face uh, confusion about Jesus or doubt or second thoughts like those in my own life? Is Jesus really the Lord whom I have taken him to be? Should I take him for my Lord and Saviour in every respect over all of my life, my God and my King? What equipment has Jesus given me, given us, to confront experiences like that of of doubt and uncertainty or more positively to, to establish us in a firm confidence in faith in him? Um, But I guess I wanted to raise this little parable thing first because could it be that sometimes at least some of our doubts or the the distance that we open up in our hearts between us and Jesus, could it be that sometimes it's really no fault of Jesus after all? It's actually just on us. Might we take warning, in other words, from that last little paragraph, warning against becoming people whose Uh, doubts or uncertainties or misgivings or questions aren't so much sincere as they're just more of an excuse to avoid Jesus in life, right? These people are making up their minds about Jesus, some of them sincerely, some of them a little less so uh, if they're upfront about what's going on in their hearts. Do we sometimes create a little safe distance between us and the Lord that we might live our lives how we want and separate ourselves from his claims um, over us. Um, Daryl Bock has a very memorable little name for that paragraph. Uh, let me share it with you. He says, Jesus' tone is harsh and represents a rebuke of those who choose not to follow John's call, as in John the Baptist's call. One could call this the parable of the brats. 
to show the remark stone. The generation is compared to children who are unhappy about how things are being done and refuse to go along. The number of those not responding is large enough that Jesus can characterise them as an entire generation. Uh, oh, that's not entirely readable. There we go. Anyway, the parable of the brats. Let's pray and come to the rest of the passage, shall we? Please join me in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, uh, we don't like to think of ourselves as um, fickle or unreasonable and certainly not as unsatisfiable brats. But Father, we come before you this morning just as we are. And Father, sometimes in life, any reason has been good enough reason to doubt your goodness or your care for us, to conveniently forget your character somehow. Father, we know something of our own hearts and from time to time we get stuck in uh, patterns of our relating to you or patterns in our relationships where we start to interpret other people's actions in the worst possible light and it doesn't matter what they can do, they can do no right. Father, would you please lift us up this morning? Would you please give us a fresh view of Jesus again? Would you please refresh our sense of who we are and who you are? Would you please equip us to face the doubt and the unanswered questions and the burdensome worries that come at us at different times in life? Would you please equip us to face those in ourselves and also face them in community with others, being ready to help and steady to lean on and gentle to guide one another? So lead us today, we pray, in the power of your spirit and in the path of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So as I make it out, the big idea, the main thrust of of our passage today in Luke chapter 7 is the call to us as readers to come near to Christ, come near to Christ. That's our big idea um, and I'll I'll come to that shortly. Luke shows us three encounters with Jesus over the course of the chapter which and they will become our three points. Um, But did you notice this common thread that I just want to highlight before we dive into them, this common thread to the three of them? In each case, there's... Um, how do you put it? Like there's an intermediary. There's someone standing in between uh, Jesus and the would-be disciple as these folks around Jesus are making up their minds about him. So the obvious one, the centurion, he sends the Jews first of all and then later he sends some of his friends to follow up and then Jesus is asked to help from a distance and even then it's not directly helping the centurion it's helping the centurion's servant. You see the sort of this space between Jesus and the actual, uh, the sort of main character in each of these encounters. Um, John the Baptist sends his disciples, of course, with um, John's burning question. And did you notice this about the middle story, which we'll come to in time? Jesus, um, he raises the young man, yep, uh, in this funeral procession. But you actually get the impression that the one he's helping is the widow, the resurrection is almost incidental to the main character of the story. Uh, The widow is the main character. So in each case, there's this little distance created for us, which I think prompts the question, will you, uh, as in the main character in our own story, will you come near to Jesus, really come near, draw near to him? There's this little gap that we've got to cross 
in life. Um, I suspect Luke has deliberately grouped these stories together to get us to think about our own willingness to approach Christ, to have Christ right up close in our lives, into our homes in the language of the um, centurion's encounter, um, our willingness as his disciples to personally associate with him like these people uh, um, encountering Jesus. And perhaps in the face of our doubts, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps in the face of pains and hurts, as we see in the text, uh, perhaps, get this, like the widow, or frankly like the centurion, in the face of the pains and hurts that those we love are called to endure or have survived or indeed have succumbed to. Sometimes that stuff actually lands a pretty devastating blow to our faith, doesn't it? Watching others suffer. Wherever we are in life, will we come near to Christ? Um, Now, if you've just come across our series in Luke's Gospel, if you've joined us here for the first time or the first time in a while, um, Luke has spread out before us the extraordinary character of God's kingdom. That's our context uh, from Luke chapter 6. It's this beautiful kingdom um, uh, promising the blessing of God to the disciples of Jesus, the blessing of God even on his enemies, even on the ungrateful, even on the unkind uh, people that we encounter in life. But it is a blessing that we are to put into practice in our behaviour, in our lives, um, after the character of our Heavenly Father. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Put aside your harshness and replace it instead with a tender-heartedness. And Jesus now steps away from the pulpit, as it were, out of his famed Sermon on the Plain. And I think the text is asking us, what about now? Uh, figuratively, they've heard the sermon on Sunday. What about in the rest of their lives? Are they, are we, content to have Jesus up close and personal, everywhere, all of the time? So I've got three points coming out of the three stories, and we're actually going to take them in reverse order, just for something different today. I'll be working backwards through the text, uh, and the three points outline what we stand to gain in an up-close encounter with the Lord Jesus. What does Christ hold for all who come near to him? And the first point is hope. Hope in the face of uncertainty and doubt and misgivings and just not knowing. Shall we read together? Um, We'll go from verse 18 in just a moment. Um, So John's dear disciples, they um, come to Jesus representing their master's wavering uncertainty. Is John really, as in really, really, the one that everyone seems to make him out to be? And uh, John's disciples in the story, they appear kind of out of the blue, verse 18, and perhaps you're wondering if John is so interested in figuring this question out, why hasn't he come? to Jesus to ask this question himself, this prophet of God, uh, this distant cousin of Jesus. Why send a couple of disciples, however trusted and reliable they may be, are we seeing a failure of John in coming near to Christ? And the answer, of course, is, if you happen to know Luke's Gospel particularly well, because John now lives in prison. That's why he hasn't come himself, actually. It's a fairly reasonable excuse, I think you'd say, where Herod has slammed him and where he will soon come to a violent and grisly end. Um, John's days are numbered. And he urgently wants to discover, are you the one on whom I have set my hopes? From verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent, to them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come? 
Or should we expect someone else? Uh, We'll keep reading in just a moment. But does it surprise you that a guy like John the Baptist didn't already know? Spontaneously or something, like automatically, inspiration from heaven or something. Because clearly, from what we read of John, he knew some things. He knew himself to be the, the messenger of Malachi 3, to prepare the way. He knew some things. He knew himself to be the voice, uh, Isaiah 40, announcing in the desert, prepare the way. Prepare the way for whom exactly? For the Lord himself, for the Lord's coming. A highway for God. So John knew a lot. God himself, the the kingdom of God, the relief for God's people, the peace that we've so longed for, the light and hope in a dark world. That's what I'm preparing for. I've got to tell the world that it's coming. He's nearly here. So is it you, Jesus? Because I've really begun to hope so. Jesus, the hope of our world. Is it you? Verse 22. So he, Jesus, replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Yeah, do you wonder why John didn't already know, didn't know it in his bones? Why didn't the rumours just confirm it for him? Why is this... Last minute wavering as he languishes in prison, this search for certainty. I suspect it's because John's a lot like us, actually. He's a mere man. He's a human. He actually needed an encounter with Jesus to hear Jesus say, yes, the way has been prepared. The era for longing and wishing that God would send his final salvation Now your hope has arrived. I am here. But John's also a lot not like us, isn't he? Because what does does John do with his uncertainty? How does he face his doubt? He comes straight to Jesus. Give me Jesus. Just give me a clear view, a direct line, a straight answer, please. I'm not sure and I'm doubting and I'm uncertain. So what am I going to do about it? I'm going to figure this out once and for all. I'm going to come straight to Jesus and figure it out. Now, why do I say that's different to us? Well, I think it is different to some of us some of the time. Because just occasionally, I'll find myself in a conversation that goes something like this. I'll ask a Christian that I meet, oh, which um, which church do you go to? And the answer is this, it's kind of non-committal at best. Am I at church? Well, no, not really. I'm I'm sort of, I'm re-evaluating at the moment, actually. I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to figure out where Jesus fits into my life and I hope hope to find my way back to church sometime soon. Yes, sometime soon. Friends, here's what I've seen. Years, years go past before they find themselves back at church. If they ever do. And may I just say, if you're visiting us, and that's kind of you right now, won't you take a leaf out of John the Baptist's book? Won't you take a leaf out of John the Baptist's book? Meet your unwavering, meet meet your wavering uh, um, uncertainty with this wonderful Jesus. Pursue Christ in your life. 
come near to him and uh, figure out for you to take yourself home and, and read a gospel, dig right into the scriptures, decide to be at church, whichever church, this church, you're welcome at this church, but whichever church you're going to be at, be at church every week. Just decide that that is going to be part of my weekly rhythm in life. Set Jesus at the centre of your project to figure life out and your hopes and your future and your family life. So we find hope in the face of uncertainty, first of all. But sometimes we flounder in grief, we lose our way because of fear or just the meanness and hardness of the world that leaves us feeling utterly helpless. So secondly, when you encounter Christ, you discover God's help. Yes, you find hope, but you also find his help. Could we read, so run back up the passage a bit further now, could we read from verse 11 together? Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. And on the bright side, I guess you could say that at least she has the support of the whole town, because, frankly, she's going to need it, isn't she? Look at her life circumstance there. Her husband is gone. Now her son, that is to say the last living male, the breadwinner in her husband's absence, the protector of the family in that kind of culture, but far more than that, frankly, with her son, her joy, to which she doubtless clung in life. I love verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. And I love it because the one who will one day wipe every tear from our eyes speaks to her in advance and says, don't cry. But even more so, I love the first bit of that verse actually, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And uh, verse 14, then he went up and touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, friends, I know that um, the sceptics, uh, and the sceptic within us as well, the sceptics will say, ah, perhaps he wasn't really dead. I mean, how can pre-scientific ancients even be sure? He must have, perhaps, he just revived at, like, exactly the right time. But, friends, when you put it all together, you can say that when you take it one miracle at a time, but when you put it all together, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And don't miss this, the helpless are helped. Uh, did you notice that? As I alluded to before, it's not really a story about the son, dead though he is and raised to life. The message, verse 16, that the people um, uh, recognise is God has come to help his people. The heart of our God goes out to those who are mourning and grieving. 
the one for whom the world has become a suddenly scary place and the world seems to offer so little to them. The reassurance of Jesus to you this morning is this. Uh, you know, perhaps your mum or your dad or your son or daughter through miscarriage or whatever, your sister or brother, they may be gone for now. But your assurance is this. In Jesus, God has come to help his people. He saw her and his heart went out to her. That's the character of Christ that we find as we come near to him. Sometimes we come face to face with the hard truth that we're not strong enough and we can't fix it and nothing's going to bring back what we had before or who we had before. Uh, We cannot, in our own strength, muster the help that we need. But this encounter with Jesus reminds us he has come. He touched the coffin. He raised the dead. He restored sight to the blind. He healed the sick. He brought hope to the brokenhearted. He has come to help his people. And an encounter with Jesus brings something else. Thirdly, it brings humility. Um, now, I appreciate that my, my headings today and, and, and the tone of my sermon so far today, at least, um, and our, our passage today, it might make it sound a bit like Jesus is just for the poor little broken things of this world. Important though that is, as important as that um, absolutely is in a, a hard world, the fragile things, but perhaps that's just not really you at the moment. Um, perhaps, how, how should we even say it? Perhaps... Um, life has just been really very kind to you in recent times and praise God for it. Perhaps you'll look for Jesus and, and probably feel the need for Jesus more when things fall apart as they inevitably do. I suppose they do for all of us, well, for most of us. But for you at the moment, you just don't feel that you particularly need him. That's not the situation that you're in. You don't need help. You haven't particularly lost hope at the present time. Perhaps you're more like this man. Uh, Luke chapter 7 and verse 8, the centurion, centurion by the way, a, a, a cent as in century or centenary or a hundred cents in our dollar, a centurion commands a hundred men. How many staff do you manage at work? How many of us manage a hundred fit, strong warriors who wield the authority of Rome even in the distant provinces? It's hard to imagine that he needed anything much of all, much at all, isn't it? Verse 8, let's read together. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. Imagine that, those who manage stuff. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Sorry, I just realised how nasty that might come across for the one staff member that I do manage. Jess, uh, yeah, please... <laughs> Not an autobiographical comment. (laughs) Do some of us, though, get to Sunday mornings, perhaps, and we wonder, what exactly do I need Jesus for? And look, perhaps you're right. Uh, Perhaps you don't need Jesus in your life in any experienced way at the present time. But may I put something to you, even so. The extraordinary thing about this centurion, this commander, this warrior who commanded with all of this power, In this text, it's not actually his togetherness and how he's like Jesus, you and me, Jesus, as if Jesus is his peer somehow, this fellow authority figure. We're the same, you and me. Actually, the extraordinary thing about this man is his ability to see through himself, 
His position hasn't robbed him of self-awareness. He knows that the similarity between himself and Jesus is only skin deep. It's a facade for me. But you are the real deal, Jesus. Who cares if I have a hundred of Rome's best answering to my call? Who cares if I cannot even heal the one who is so dear to me? When you are face to face with God and you realise that you are face to face with God, then the wise man can see that he needs God far more than God needs you. It's humility, isn't it? I wonder, have we had that kind of encounter with Jesus in our lives? Let's read from verse 1 now of chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far away from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. I find this character particularly interesting because here is a man like us who did not see the earthly Jesus face to face. Like us, do you see? But he saw Jesus more clearly than me much of the time. Are you the same? Here is a man like us who didn't want Jesus too close, like us, some of us, some of the time, but he kept his distance from Jesus out of humility and because of awe. And I'm not sure that my reserve at having Jesus too close is quite as noble some of the time. Are you the same? Here is a man like us to whom Jesus was glad to come. Which is a surprise, really. Uh, Verse 6, Jesus has had a request from a Gentile, from a Roman, a non-Jewish, outside of the fold, somebody. Are you surprised at verse 6? So Jesus went with them. Jesus was glad to come to his house. He was on his way there. And I put it to you, he is glad to come to yours. But may I leave you with this challenge? When our friends are helpless or hopeless or life has humbled them, will we, like Jesus, be the ones who go to their house to help them come close to Christ? I think it can be hard to know what to say, when our friends are helpless or hopeless or life has humbled them. And oftentimes more listening than talking is called for anyway, that's certainly true. But may I encourage us with this, we have found in Jesus the hope of the whole world and we have found the help of our God and the one willing to come even to our humble homes, the humble homes of our lives. We have the one that our whole world needs. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we confess to you this morning uh, that we aspire to great faith, 
but it has rarely been our way. We look at these examples of faith. We aspire to a firm faith that's unflappable, but it's rarely been in our grasp. We do aspire to that naked vulnerability before you in our walk, but we often hold back or we wander or we try to conceal things from you, even though you're the God of all the earth who sees all things and searches hearts. Father God in heaven, we give you thanks that faith the sight of a mustard seed is saving faith. For what saves us is Christ, your hope for the world, our help in the world, and the one who came and touched with a heart that went out to us, a kingdom that's great for all of us. Lord God, would you please empower us to uh, put aside, perhaps for some of us, a a sullen um, rejection of you that doesn't even have any particularly good reason to push you out of our lives. We get stuck in these eddies of faithlessness sometimes. Would you empower us, our dear God, to live today as these great heroes of faith lived humble even though desperate, full of awe and praise upon receiving your help, seeking you, turning straight to you and coming close to Christ in times of uncertainty. And God, would you guide us as we now try to share Christ with those around us? Would you remind us that he is always close to us, that you will never leave us or forsake us? God, lead us through this real world in faith in our real Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And in his name we ask it. Amen.